Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. I'm so delighted to share this conversation with the wonderful Cindy Darnell today. We explored so much and Cindy is a wealth of knowledge around so many topics and we really focused in on desire for this podcast and we talk about the common myths about sex and desire and what is actually true. We explore why you might not feel desire for sex. Cindy offers a different perspective on what's known as mismatched desire when people have different levels or types of desire, and also how to create the sex life you desire. Because as Cindy said, this is something that you can learn and doesn't just happen. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome. And today I am joined by the wonderful Cindy Darnell. Hello to you. Hello, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. I'm glad we got to make some time to talk about some sexy life stuff today. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, thank you for making the time. So I'd love to just start introducing you with your um, very fabulous bio and Uh tell um, my listeners a little bit about who you are. So Cindy is a clinical sexologist, sex and relationship therapist with over 20 years experience in Australia, Mm -hmm. the States and the UK. Cindy offers online courses, and I'll tell you about her website, a fabulous range of online courses there around sex and pleasure. And she consults with individuals, couples, and poly couples across the globe. Mm -hmm. Um, Cindy's also a clinical associate of Pink Therapy in the UK and a board affiliate for the University of Wisconsin Sex Therapy Certification Program. Ah, and here's your book title, your first Mm -hmm. book. Sex when you don't feel like it. The truth about mismatched libido and how to find desire is going to be out in mid 2022. And Cindy has many academic works published in the Journal of Sex and Relationship Therapy, the Journal of Sex Education and multiple popular media outlets worldwide. What a bio. (laughs) Thank you. It's it's been a labor of, you know, over 20 years. So yeah, it's, um, it's been great actually to be part of a field that you know sexology is still really new and I started out in this aspect in the clinical aspect of the work I started out initially as a a psychotherapist Um, and what I found with my psychotherapy training was that there were two things one thing is that a lot of psychotherapists in basic training don't get any training around sex and relationships and if they do get training around sex and relationships it tends to be very geared towards either very traditional models of relating which really don't work for a lot of people even people in 
you know, ostensibly very traditional relationships, they still find it really difficult to sustain those models because those models were not actually designed for pleasure. They were designed for financial compatibility, which we'll talk about later. Um, and then beyond that, in terms of sexuality and sex, increasingly therapists are getting trained around sexual diversity. So things like um, same sex attraction and, and uh, even increasingly now gender diversity is becoming something that is a little more mainstream to be discussed, but still beyond that, the machinations of, uh, of sex in contrast with sexuality. So one's orientation or identity is one thing. And then sex is, you know, the activities that we do. That is still usually overlooked in traditional psychotherapy training. And I always found that really odd and frustrating because it's such an important part of our lives for those who want to have some sort of sex. And when I say sex, just to clarify, I'm not necessarily talking about penis and vagina sex, although that's part of it. I'm talking about everything from you know, kissing and, and touching and massaging through to, you know, 10 person orgies, if that's your cup of tea. So um, that sort of stuff is really overlooked in psychotherapy training, I think primarily because people find it uncomfortable to talk about. And you'd think that therapy training would cover stuff that's uncomfortable. And, and what's odd about therapy training is that we are trained like bloodhounds to look for problems, but we are never encouraged to move towards pleasure. And I find that a very odd conundrum that therapists experience in their therapy training. It's all about problems, never about pleasure. Yeah. So I have dedicated the last 20 odd years of my professional life to flipping that therapeutic script and I work less as a psychotherapist these days and more almost primarily and exclusively as a sex and relationships therapist because it's so needed because traditional psychotherapists really are not equipped to work with sex and relationships and it is my passion to work with sex and relationships so I offer that service through a therapeutic lens but a lot of it is about providing information giving people education and teaching people that if they're feeling stuck around sex and relationships, it's probably not because there's something wrong with them. It's probably because they don't have the information they need to make better choices that are going to serve them, that are pleasure-oriented, not problem-oriented. Yes, that's just like a nugget right there because we both, I'm sure, <laughs> see so many people who present with this sense that there's something wrong with them. Yeah. And indeed that, you know, I just was had a client this morning and she's felt defective all her life was the word that she used. And yeah. it's 56 and it's just starting to shift um, through watching the sex, love and goop. She realized, actually, there's so much I don't know. That has that show has transformed so many people. I have had so, my inquiries have doubled, I think, mm. in the last you know six eight weeks since that show has come out because you know that I know Gwyneth and Goop people are you know have various opinions about her and and that's not what I'm going to talk about. But what that show offers is an insight, a portal into what's possible. And I think that has been revolutionary. I'm really thrilled with how they put that show together. 
absolutely it's just sent ripples around the world and yeah. I've had like you <laughs> lots of inquiries and people go is that possible and I realized it's not maybe me that's the problem and yeah. so just that alone is super powerful so yeah yeah absolutely so was it the lack of um how did you sort of go to specialize in this area she said there was a distinct lack of training were you just noticing lots of clients coming through with these issues well, i i mean as a very young person like even as a teenager i was interested in sex i wasn't an especially sexual teenager as such i think i was sort of at a normal level of sexual interest you know i started I started noticing that I was interested in sex around about 15 or 16, but I wasn't especially, um, you know, active or, you know, the word that we used to use in the old days, promiscuous. I wasn't especially like that, but I was interested in it. And my mum was relatively liberal around sex. She never told me that it was bad. She certainly never told me it was good either. She, she actually didn't say a whole lot about it, but it was never a thing that was, uh, not allowed and she did say to me if ever I wanted to have sex that she wanted me to do it at home because uh, she wanted to make sure I was safe that was pretty much all she said she didn't really talk about much else because she's not an especially expressive person um, but she did say have sex at home so I did and my first boyfriend in high school we had sex in my bedroom at like five o'clock in the afternoon after school one day and it was such an anticlimax, <laughs> not because of him. I'm still friends with him now. But uh, <laughs> in case he listens to this, uh, we've had this discussion though. But you know, just because there was this whole hoo-ha about you know penis and vagina sex, and then when it happened, I was like, is that it? And then the next thing was, mum was knocking on the door saying dinner's ready, and we both just got up and went and had dinner as if nothing happened, you know. And so in that way, I recognize that my first introduction to sex was relatively stress free because of this, it, you know, it, it was such an, it was such a, it was such a non event, like it was just so, uh, what's the fuss about? Why is everybody flipping out about this? This is so nothing, you know. And then because uh, my experience of it was so, what's the fuss? And then I observed everyone else around me wigging out about it. I think that's what inspired me to go, well, maybe there's more to this. Why is everybody reacting so strangely? And I was more interested in what it was that other people were experiencing that flipped them out rather than my own experience that was, it wasn't especially pleasurable. It just wasn't, it was just nothing. And I couldn't understand. I couldn't bridge the gap between why, why is this such a big deal? Why is there this huge social taboo around it? And that really was what inspired me to, to sort of move forward. And then in my twenties, I definitely became a lot more adventurous. I left Australia. I went to live in the UK. I ended up living in Scotland for about three or four years. And, you know, that's really when I sort of came into myself and started really exploring more uh, adventurous aspects of my sexuality. And, and then even still, I was astounded by how freaked out people were about these things. And it was also at that time that I discovered Annie Sprinkle. Mm. And I, for people watching, uh, listening rather, <laughs> who don't know who she is, she was a, a, a porn star in the 70s and 80s. And then in the in the 90s, she became a performance artist and she was traveling around the world doing these live shows about her life. And so I saw her in Glasgow at the Bad Girls Festival, which was in the early 1990s. And 
I remember watching her and being equally kind of transfixed and horrified because she was doing this sort of you know wild stuff on stage and she was at the time in her 40s you know I'm quite voluptuous and it was the first time I'd seen an older kind of plus size woman being explicitly erotic and I was just like oh, oh my god this is outrageous you know and then I couldn't shake that feeling of of being really challenged by her and I couldn't work out what it was and so I, it sat with me for three or four days I just could not get her out of my head and then one night in the middle of the night I just sat bolt upright and went oh my god I'm like her oh no oh no I don't want to be like her this is terrible and then <laughs> and then you know despite wishing and hoping and praying that I wouldn't end up like her of course I ended up almost exactly like her <laughs> and I'm thrilled now that I am because I had to make peace with that part of myself you know and I'm so I'm grateful to her for for being a role model for me in so many ways um and then also one of her dear friends became one of my dear friends Barbara Perellas mm. who I really credit for being the person who gave me the doorway into this work professionally uh, and Barbara and I are still very close friends now coming up to 30 years so that's really sort of how I got into this work was initially just through my self-exploration and then you know being fortunate enough to meet Annie and Barbara and going you know and because they were older than me just saying oh wow so this is what it looks like how you can be an a you know a sexual woman through different ages and um and that were they were they were the people who who gave me that grounding, which I think, given that I was so young when I met them, that really rounded out my adult years, and and I was able to have a pretty good relationship with sexuality because I had some really advanced mentors. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that helped. <laughs> and they're two amazing women that have inspired me and so so many others, and so yeah. wonderful. So. I'd love to dive into the topic of desire because mm -hmm. it's um, such a rich topic and so uh, misunderstood, so many myths that are in our culture around what desire is. Mm -hmm. And so I'd really love to speak to some of those. So first yeah. of all, you know, what do you see as some of the really common misunderstandings that we have as desire and also how you would define desire? Mm. So I make a distinction um, with desire and I make a distinction sort of between libido mm. and horniness. Mm. So I think a lot of us tend to associate being in the mood, this notion of being in the mood and, and being desirous with horniness. And while that can be part of it for some people some of the time, desire in the way that I define it is much more about a relationship to pleasure and the erotic, including the mental, emotional and physical aspects of it, as opposed to horniness, which is very much a physiological feeling of, ooh, 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 you know, I'm really horny, that will be the result of a biochemical uh, shift in the body. Now, the problem with horniness, well, not the problem necessarily, but the, the thing about horniness is that it's unreliable because mm. it is based in a biochemical thing. It's sort of like I, I talk about this in my book. It's like waiting for a bus that never comes. You can be standing at the bus stop and waiting and waiting and waiting and hoping that the bus will come. 
and you can just stand there and stand there and stand there and imagine that you're going to a party. And so all your friends who are going to the party are going past in cars, they're going past in taxis, on their bicycles, Ubers, some are even going on their scooters and skateboards and they're going past and they're waving out going, hi, come on, come on. And you're like, no, no, I, I'm okay. I'm going to wait for the bus. I'm, I'm good. I'm going to wait for the bus. And then you're waiting and waiting and waiting. And then the bus never comes. And so you never get to the destination because you insisted on going on the bus, even though you could have gone in the car, taken a lift with a friend, you didn't, you insisted on going on the bus. And so this is how a lot of us feel about sex, that if the bus doesn't come, if we don't feel horny, then we decide, well, I'm not going to go to the party, then I'm just going to stay here at the bus stop, because if the bus isn't coming, then I can't go, I can't have sex if I don't feel horny. And the problem with that is that horniness is only one way to experience sexual motivation. And for a lot of us, regardless of our gender, this is true for men and women and people of various genders, horniness is unreliable. So when we start to have a relationship with desire that is much more textured than horniness alone, we start to develop the opportunities to create an inspiration, to create a motivation to have sex that is based on something other than horniness. And then what we do know from the sex research that is available currently is that often once we start doing an activity that we consider to be pleasurable, the horniness will come later. Mm. So instead of us having the belief that we must be horny to have sex, what the research suggests is, is that if we start doing something that feels good, then the horniness will follow. So it's actually the opposite of what we've been led to believe that sex is. This whole thing of you know being in the mood is that we actually create the mood because it's not going to descend out of nowhere. And we will get stuck at the bus stop if we're just going to stand there and do nothing about it. We actually have to really be proactive in creating a sex life that we want to have. And pleasure is central to that. So that's my definition of desire and, and libido. And in essence, I really, this book is about busting through some of these myths that, you know, that sex is natural, that desire is natural. I argue really strongly that neither of those things are natural. The instinct to grind, you know, to to, to want to connect, I think that's probably natural. Mm. But the craft of being a good lover, the craft of understanding one's own sexual blueprint, as it were, the craft of being able to communicate with another person about that, all that stuff, that's not natural. That is learned. That takes practice. That takes willingness. That takes acceptance. That takes the ability to stretch oneself to accommodate one's own needs and requirements and those of, of our partners. And so when people say to me, oh, it's just sex, you know, sex is natural. I'm like, really? On what planet? You know, <laughs> it, it, when people say that, it leads me to understand that they're sex education is almost zero yeah. when they can simplify it down to you know I just it's just it, sex is easy it should just happen naturally when you're with the right person I'm just like mm -mm. it is so much more I don't want to say complicated but certainly textured and nuanced and there are ways through it and I think it's a really valid 
and worthwhile project to research our own relationship to sex and then it changes as we get older when we go through menopause and then beyond everything that you know what was certain in our 20s shifts in our 30s and 40s and then shifts again in our 50s and 60s and then after that so it's a lifelong pursuit mm. Mm, I love that as a very valid project. So if, if people <laughs> listening, if they wanted to um, get started on this project, because for so many people, they do believe it should just happen naturally. And mm. it's like anything, if you want to master it and learn it, it's absolutely treating it like a craft. So where mm -hmm. might people start with that? Yeah. So I think, you know, the best thing to do is, is, you know, getting information, reading books, watching videos, going to classes. I mean, a lot of us are all locked down with various COVID restrictions across the world. So the beauty of the internet means that all of this can now be accessible online. And it's also useful too, for people who feel shy, who feel like I'd never go to an in-person sex workshop, that so much of this stuff is available online. So I think, you know, listening to podcasts like yours is a great thing to do. Watching shows like the Goop show on Netflix is a great thing to do. Reading books like mine coming out next year <laughs> is a great thing to do. Looking at my website. Um, following uh, sex therapists and educators and sex professionals on Instagram yeah. and, and TikTok and various things is also a great thing to do. There are lots and lots of ways at lots and lots of price points to be able to access information. You don't need to spend gazillions of dollars on individual therapy. You can, if you want to, some people really love the indulgence of having that one-on-one -on -one time, but that's not the only way. There are more you know, cost-effective options for people who are on a budget. Don't feel like if you haven't got thousands of dollars to spend, it's not gonna be accessible to you. It is books online classes, all that stuff, make it much more affordable. It is an investment emotionally, time-wise, a little bit financially, that you have to decide is worth it. If you don't decide that it's worth it, then, you know, maybe it's not worth it to you and that's okay. It, it's totally up to you. It is a choice. But if you feel like it's something that matters, if you do feel like there is just a tiny little flicker of a flame within you that's like, yeah, I do want more from my sex life. That is the flame I encourage people to follow. And you start, start by just going with educators and, and therapists and, and professionals who have free offerings online and just start following your nose that way. Start learning to trust your intuition. Yeah. There are, unfortunately, in this profession, a few snakes, people who don't have your best intentions at heart. So really use your intuition and, and develop a sense of, is this person, is this person right for me? If at any point they are suggesting that you do something that really makes you feel uncomfortable, take that as a serious red flag. If they are not, you know, if their practices are not embedded in consent, if they try to manipulate you in any way, part with money or to do something that you don't want to do that's a sign to me that they are not what they mm. say they are um and and move on there are a lot of sexuality professionals around a lot of good ones and unfortunately a handful of bad ones i do have to be really frank about yeah. that with people and so but not to say that the whole field is full of snakes it's not there are some really good people in this field 
and you know Sarah you're one of them I'd like to think that I'm one of them too um, and and you know there is support so that's how you start you start by making a decision that it's it's the right thing to do mm. and also that it's possible <laughs> that, and that it is really possible. is Absolutely, possible yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah you... and no matter your age you're never too old or too young you yeah. know there's information for teenagers and then there's information for folks in their 20s and 30s there's information for people in their 40s and 50s there's information for people in their 60s 70s 80s and 90s yeah. it really it, and it changes and it, it is age relevant because what's relevant to a 20 year old is not going to be relevant to a 60 year old and vice versa but you know and and there are people and offerings around that meet people at different age groups, different genders, different orientations. Yeah. Everybody is covered these days. And that's a wonderful thing about how the profession has opened up in the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I love what you shared about, you know, your, for example, you've got brilliant content on your Instagram page and you've got some fantastic mm. articles on your website. So just there is a really great place to start. Yeah. And like <laughs> you say, follow what lights you up, follow what you're curious about and it will yeah. take you on a follow the breadcrumbs. So yes, yeah. Exactly. So tell me about your book title because I was really curious to see it's a title that instantly got me intrigued. <laughs> oh good. I'm really glad. Well it's funny because I, I had been thinking people had been saying to me what's it called and I couldn't think of a name. And then I was actually at a fourth of July celebration this year uh, with friends of mine and there were some people there I hadn't met and my friend who was hosting the party introduced me to them and and in the process of introducing me said oh and Cindy's got a book coming out and one of these people said what's it called and I said oh I don't have a name yet but it's it's you know I, I, I can't really think of it but it's it's about you know fucking when you don't feel like it and so this person said you should call it that and I was like oh that's a good idea so then I wrote to the publisher and I said how about fucking when you don't feel like it and they said well you could but there are a lot of books with fuck in the title so let's let's think about something else because it's in the last couple of years there have been a lot of books with fuck in the title and um and I said all right well how about sex when you don't feel like it and they said okay and so that's how the title came because I, I literally couldn't think of another name and I said well what is it about it is about sex when you don't feel like it that's exactly what it's about and because of that it actually really resonates with people because they can look at the cover and go oh yeah that's me you know or that's my partner you know so it's also about it's also for people who are in relationships with people who don't feel like having sex so it covers both sides of the of the coin insofar that it teaches you how to explore the experience of not feeling like sex from both sides of the fence and it, a lot of it is about um it's very practical there's a lot of activities and homework suggestions and things to do it's not me just throwing science and research at you there is a lot of science and research in there but it's also about okay so here's all this knowledge so now what what do we do yeah. with all this knowledge and then I break it down into activities some of them are reflective activities some of them are practical hands-on activities and it's also pitched at different levels where if you're a more advanced person you can do more advanced practices and if you're a beginner you can do beginner practices so it's really I think, I hope, I have pitched it at lots of different kinds of people, including multiple relationship styles, different gendered people, um, and, and also different ways of understanding sex. The implication is not 
penis in vagina centric it's included but it's not the main narrative at all wonderful yeah well so and and i love that because again you know for so many clients i see and i'm sure for you as well that's their predominant model of sex and there's no um possibility outside of that and i love the phrase the peggy kleinplatz you know when is the sex you're having worth wanting yes it's so (laughs) powerful isn't it it is so so powerful and um and there's that um i can't remember who wrote it but there's that fabulous report where someone uh, did some research about the different reasons why people have sex and it was something like 236 different reasons that's right yeah that was cindy meston and david bus that's wrote it that paper. yeah yeah and 236 i mean it's just mind-blowing yeah. i bet we could double it if we sat here yeah and that's the thing it, then it would be even more it's just incredible and because you know that's the thing about the rudimentary understandings of sex education that we still teach it as if reproduction is the reason people have sex and every when I used to run in-person seminars back you know pre-covid and I would often say to the audience you know so put your hand up if the if the only reason you have sex is to make babies mm. and of course nobody puts their hand up for that you know and that's whether you're partnered or solo because I also include solo sex as, yeah. as, as a reason as and for for people who are saying I don't feel like sex it's like well do you masturbate no I don't feel like it well come on let's even look at that because you don't have to have a partner to have a great sex life. And that's also one of the myths I think that we believe is that sex can only occur with another person. And I yeah. say, no, no, you have to be able to enjoy it by yourself as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, our motivations are, you know, I, I've never had sex to make a baby ever, you know, and then people are like, well, that's what it's for. It's like, oh, come on, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> But this is another thing, isn't it? As so many people, um, pleasure's just not the norm in their lives for all sorts yeah. of different reasons. Yeah. And just the concept of, of permission to have sex for pure pleasure can feel mm-hmm. so indulgent or all really? sorts of different things for people. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me what other reasons do you feel that, um, what other things do you see that affect desire? So there's lack of sex education in terms mm-hmm. of the people that are just waiting for the bus to come along mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. not sort of cultivating, knowing that they mm-hmm. can cultivate it for themselves. Mm-hmm. What other things do you feel affect it? I think too, I mean, looking at, at Peggy Kleinplatz's research about, you know, the sex worth wanting, because a lot of us tend to default to penis and vagina sex and and like even the notion of foreplay, that foreplay is not considered to be sex. I actually think foreplay is is probably the most powerful sexual act that any of us can engage in. And it covers so many things that we forget that sex involves the mind. We forget that sex involves the entire body, the arms, the legs, the feet, you know, the back, the chest, the ears, the hair, the scalp, the lips, all of this. And we tend to just go for breasts or genitals or buttholes or these sorts of things that are the more uh, obvious things that we tend to associate with sex but often the reason that going straight for the genitals or straight for the boobs or straight for the bum doesn't feel good is because it's out of context we haven't taken the time to encourage the body to relax enough to allow all of the multiple nervous systems to start interacting with each other to start interacting with the brain it's hard to feel turned on and sexy if you're stressed and worried and thinking is a kid going to come bursting through the door any moment is the 
you know, I, I left the, the chips on the stove. Are they going to, you know, catch fire? Uh, is the dog going to poop everywhere? Like just if you've got other things on your mind that are distracting you, it's really hard to be able to be present and relax. And so for people who are in relationships, for example, with people who are, you know, not in the mood, sometimes it can be because they've got too much on their plate. So as a partner who has a, you know, robust libido, with somebody whose who's libido is not so robust. One of the things that you can do to encourage your partner to step over to your side is consider, well, what can I do to ease some of the burden in their life? How can I take a bit of pressure off other aspects of their life that's not even about sex, like picking up the kids from school, whatever it is. If you take some stuff off their plate, that might actually be the foreplay that's required <laughs> yeah. to get them to relax enough to be able to come over to your side. So it's not just about surprising them with, you know, chocolate body paint and spearmint mass massage oil. If they're stressed out, that's not going to do anything. You have to start thinking about this more laterally and understanding that eroticism is not just rubbing genitals together. Eroticism is this entire relational space that's created between you that involves both parties being relaxed enough to be able to participate so I think that's one of the other things that can really inspire desire is taking the emphasis of rubbing genitals mm. and starting to think about well what kinds of things when we have had good sex what were the context what were the conditions that made that happen had we had a couple of hours having nice dinner and a couple of glasses of wine had I offered a massage first had I made sure that um, you know the house was tidy or that the, the kids were away at grandma's for the weekend or you know just thinking about all of these more contextual things I think a lot of that stuff we pretend that again because we have decided as a society that sex is about horniness and that horniness just falls down out of the sky and no matter what if you're feeling horny sex is going to be fabulous and it's just not true mm. if you're preoccupied with other stuff and you carry a large amount of what they call the mental load, which is yes. being attentive to, you know, the bills that have to get paid. Uh, you know, when is the, have we got enough dog food? Do we have to, when do the kids' school fees have to be paid? When's the laundry, you know, or just all this stuff. The machinations of running a household is the mental load. If you're in a partnership where one person is more in charge of that stuff than the other, that can be a real anti-aphrodisiac. And so we have to start thinking about it in that context and going, ah, oh, if the mental load is, you know, a leg closer, as I say, and I mean that across genders, not Ooh. just for women. Um, if a mental load is a leg closer, then we need to shift the load and start spreading it out more evenly, including outsourcing it if you need to hire a cleaner or hire babysitters or hire dog walkers or whatever it is and you're in a position to be able to do that then do it it's worth it because having a nice supple relaxed nervous system is probably the biggest aphrodisiac there is and we don't stop to think about that enough massage oil and chocolate body paint are not going to do shit if you're uptight and anxious yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely and it is how you cross that bridge and (laughs) absolutely and winds down and 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 those transitions between the two and and I love what you shared as well around how the clues are also in what's happened in the past yeah you know Mm. what is it that you've enjoyed with each other before or by yourself before you know yeah. where were you what was happening and yeah and and so there's so much richness in your past that you can mine for giving yes. you clues for what you can create going yes. forward absolutely absolutely and I think too you know a lot of the when you read articles in in sort of magazines and and that kind of thing and they often talk about oh just let go you know if you just let go everything's fine <laughs> And I mean, that's easier said than done. And and often the thing is, so for people who are listening, who who have trouble letting go, as it were, it's also useful to think about, and this is obvious, you know, this is the therapist in me coming out, but that inability to let go or the, the, the whatever it is that is in the way of you letting go, that serves a purpose of some kind. So it's not always just about, you know just letting go and and putting it out of your head sometimes there is a reason that you're you know holding on let's say because perhaps you have had some bad experiences in the past and your body is like "Mm, I don't feel safe you know physiologically I don't feel safe or maybe there is some religious conditioning and, and that's something that needs to be sort of worked through and unpacked so the notion of letting go if there's a barrier there the barrier it's not for us to just push on through regardless we have to honor that barrier even if it no longer serves us we do have to become friends with that barrier and and work through understanding what purpose did it once serve and then finding a way to work with it rather than bust through it I don't think busting through barriers is in any way helpful it just sets up more of the same sense of powerlessness Mm. so learning to be with our barriers learning to be with our blockages learning to become friends with them and find out what their motivations are you know a technique that you can do by yourself is Imagine that you're interviewing that barrier and that you're asking it questions and writing down its answers. What, you know, what purpose do you serve in my life? How long have you been in my life? What do you want me to know? What purpose is there? And and as you get to know what the barrier is, often you'll find that the barrier is there because it's trying to help you. It's not necessarily malevolent. It often it is benevolent. And once we can start to see it as our ally rather than our enemy, sometimes even that practice in itself makes it dissolve and soften. Mm. And so then the notion of letting go becomes a little bit easier because whatever the barrier is ceases to be something that's an enemy. And this is a much more, again, a textured relationship with desire. It's not just about busting through barriers and you know this sort of very patriarchal notion of just soldiering on regardless that that ends up leading to bad sex painful sex resentment regret and you know there's a lot of that in the world we don't need any more of that so. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and I, I love that being making friends because so many 
for people there can be fear and all sorts of things around it but right. actually it's part of you and like yeah. you say it's there for a reason yeah. and again coming back to the wonderful Peggy Kleinplatz I love what she shares you know that the cure to, to low desire is mm-hmm. creating sex that's desirable yes. and so yeah. Yeah. You don't, it's not about pushing through with any type of sex you don't want to be having or that isn't pleasurable exactly. but it's looking at these blocks and where they are so yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a common one that people talk about is, which you've got in your book title, so I'd love to hear you speak a little bit about this, is, is the idea of mismatched desire. Mm. So mm. that's such a common issue that people present with. So tell yeah. me a little bit about how you see that and what advice do you give to people experiencing yeah. that? I think, again, we assume that mismatched desire comes down to a lack of compatibility and it's absolutely not true every couple is going to have mismatched desire at some stage in their relationship because it's the same as saying, you know, what do you want for dinner, honey? I want pasta. Mm, I want salad. Oh, well, then we need to get divorced. (laughs) It's like, come on. (laughs) You know, we don't treat sex with the same kind of you know ease that we that we treat food like you don't you're not going to divorce somebody because they like pasta and you like salad you recognize that occasionally you will eat pasta because that's what they want and occasionally they will eat salad because that's what you want and occasionally you'll just have separate meals because it's just easier and you're not going to fight about it and that approach is how we also approach mismatched libido that said if the somebody's desire for a particular activity or a particular you know erotic experience feels like a boundary violation to the other partner that's a much more nuanced and complicated thing than you know pasta versus salad but even then there are ways of being able to talk about it and understand it and and then sometimes we start getting into the territory of relationship therapy where it starts being about looking at the relationship as as a third entity i often encourage couples to see their relationship between between them as, uh, you know, as a pet or a plant or a child, something that they have to look after and nourish, which sometimes means not centering yourself as an individual in the transaction, but recognizing that in order to, for the relationship to thrive, you have to be willing to compromise and step back on something or give something of yourself in order to keep the relationship going. And that is sometimes where people can understand the balance between mismatched libido is that sort of game of give and take. And also that that is normal. It is not indicative of an incompatibility. It doesn't mean you need to separate. It doesn't mean you're with the wrong person. It means you need to learn how to manage the fact that you have different tastes because you're different people. And that's, you know, all couples are made up of, you know, different people. You're not going to be exactly the same as your partner. Thank goodness. Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, I don't think I would date somebody exactly like me. (laughs) Terrible. So so you're going to have different wants and desires at different times. That is fine. There is nothing wrong with that. It's what you do with that knowledge and it's how you integrate that that determines whether it becomes a problem in your relationship or not. And 
there are different kinds of solutions that might be more conventional. Some might be a bit more outside the square, including, and I do encourage people to consider this too, Sometimes if you're in a relationship with a partner who really wants to do a thing, a particular thing, they're really into, you know, um, they're, they're really into BDSM, like they're really, really into it. And you're just not. Sometimes it can be helpful to let the partner, to have an agreement that the partner goes and experiences that physiological side of themselves with somebody else outside of the partnership, simply because it takes the pressure off of you to have to show up to do an activity that you really don't want to do. And it allows the sovereignty of your partner's individuality to also exist, that they get to experiment and experience that part of themselves with another person. And it doesn't take away from the fact that they love you. It doesn't take away from the fact that you are their partner. But, you know, if you really like curry, and they really like pizza and you can't tolerate pizza because you're lactose intolerant and they want to go and eat pizza with somebody else, it doesn't mean that they don't love you anymore. And that that's a, obviously a much more textured conversation, but increasingly I am finding couples who are willing to colour outside the lines a little bit around that stuff in order to maintain the integral central relationship because sometimes that's the compromise that's required and that it's not for everybody yeah. but for the couples for whom that works it works exceptionally well mm. fantastic and that's it so it's the solutions that that like you say it's not an issue it's yeah. about recognizing that there's always going to be differences and how yeah. can you come up with solutions and get creative yeah. around these solutions yeah. that work for both of you yeah. um, or all of you um, yeah. whatever relationship <laughs> configuration you have so yeah. fantastic and yeah. yeah. um, to finish I'd love to hear what do you feel makes great sex what are the ingredients because often people I find think it's all about technique <laughs> yeah and, and initially and they quickly learn that there's so much more than yeah. technique so I'd love yeah. to hear from you although that's absolutely part of it what yeah. do you feel are some of the things that make up great sex I think there are three integral parts curiosity acceptance and willingness hmm. The curiosity to investigate yourself and to investigate your partner. Acceptance of what you find without trying to change yourself or trying to change the other. And the willingness to work with both the curiosity and the acceptance to find where the limitations are, where the portals are, the willingness to cross the bridge to meet your partner at the, point, the place that they are and the willingness for them to come to your side the willingness to think outside the square and then to continue that journey of curiosity, acceptance and willingness, I think is central mm. to erotic satisfaction. Without that trifecta, you're always going to be stuck. Mm. I love that. Curiosity is the best medicine for this, isn't it? For sure. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, and, sure. The, and the acceptance, because so many people judge themselves, don't they, for what they yeah. feel and what they are aroused by, what they believe. And, yeah. and um, we're all just made up so unique and so beautifully different. <laughs> right. And because, you know, that acceptance piece is that, you know, accepting ourselves yeah, as we look, you know, if, we're, if we think our bodies are too fat or too thin or too this or too that or 
um, you know, I wish I were kinkier. I wish I were more vanilla. I wish you were kinkier. I wish you were more <laughs> vanilla. I wish, you know, all of this, you know, wanting to change stuff. And sometimes you can change stuff and that's a great thing to do. And then sometimes you can't change stuff. Things are just, they are how they are. And all of those things are about the relationship that we have with acceptance, being able to accept limitations, being able to accept challenges, mm -hmm. being able to accept that people don't see things the way we see them. It doesn't always have to lead to the end of days. That's again, then where the willingness comes into it. In my book, I talk about this. I have a whole chapter called the triangle of satisfaction. And that is three, mm. these three points. And I go into the depths of how the triangle of satisfaction is crucial to creating a sex life that is both pleasure centered and nourishing. It has to be nourishing. For some people, pleasure is not always the motivator, mm. but for those for whom it is, that is a central tenet, but also, as we know, there are 200 and however many reasons that people have sex. If for you, pleasure is not physiological, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's mental, maybe it's, um, you, you know, there's, a, again, there's a lot of reasons. And so that triangle of satisfaction, the curiosity, the acceptance and the willingness, if you can accept that your motivation is not horniness, if you can accept that your motivation is because you like to keep your partner happy. If that really is what you want, that's okay. You know, it might not be what you're reading about in the glossy magazines, but if that is gonna get your relationship moving in the direction that you want, and that brings you joy, it brings you contentment, it brings you satisfaction, then it's okay. You get to make your own rules and your own structure and those tools I think are crucial mm. no matter how you define your sex and relationship status mm. yeah absolutely fabulous thank you so much and finishing as we're on the sexy life podcast I would <laughs> love to hear from you what does living a sexy life mean to you and I'd love to share um, you to share something that you do in your life, a practice or something that you've found to be in really invaluable um, to the listeners today. Mm. So I think for me, living a sexy life involves a balance, which is not necessarily an equal balance, but it's a balance between um, safety, risk and freedom. Mm. And I move between those kind of areas uh, in my life in different ways. So, you know, I left Australia, for example, after having a pretty established career. And I was certainly very well known in Australia, in the media and, and in the community as well, because I, I felt really stuck professionally and actually to a degree personally in Australia. I was feeling very, very stuck <clears throat> for a bunch of reasons. And I knew that New York was where I wanted to be, even though I had never lived here before. I had spent quite a lot of time orbiting around here and I knew that this was the place I wanted to be, to live. And so I moved here four years ago um, and set up my practice and my business here. And it was really hard and it's, it's great now, but the first sort of year and a half, two years were excruciatingly difficult. And I could have given up, but I didn't. 
and I'm glad I didn't and now I'm still here and then you know COVID happened and all that blah blah happened so that was you know I mean of course that affected everybody um but for me living a sexy life is about taking risks for me it's about running with my heart and it was not a logical decision to leave Australia and move to New York everybody was like what the fuck are you doing you're in a crazy middle-aged lady with a great business why are you selling your car you know getting rid of everything just packing up shop and moving and I said because that's what my heart is telling me to do that's mm. how I walk my talk you know for me having a, sex, a sexy life is not just you know lube and, and vibrators <laughs> like it's <laughs> it's like you know I really I really throw myself into what I do because passion matters to me pleasure matters to me taking risks matters to me I don't think everybody should do exactly what I do I recognize that the way I do things is probably more extreme than most people but that said there is a little bit of me inside everybody there is a little bit of that adventure seeking risk taker inside everybody and you don't have to pack up and move across the world to to embody that but if you give yourself permission to stretch yourself just a little bit every day or every week by the end of the year you will have stretched quite a lot and sometimes it will be hard and sometimes it will be uncomfortable but that's where growth is so that's what I think a sexy life is. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and is there a practice that you'd love to share? Something that you, or it might be just something you do for yourself that brings you pleasure and, and joy that wouldn't be, I, I love to share these because it's inspiring people. Yeah. To I, um, I mean, it's, you know, with COVID happening, it's been really difficult because mm. I, I used to enjoy things like Pilates and stuff. And now I, I, I mean, I could do it online, but I've, I, I have been really, tired of doing kind of online yoga and online pilates i want to be back in a room with other people again i really miss being in mm. rooms with other people um but you know I, I i think one of the things that i really enjoy is i have really nice uh, bed linen i have very <laughs> expensive sheets and pillows and stuff because that's the place where I was going to say that's a place I do my best work. That's not entirely true, but <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, when I when I am having bedroom activities, I like to have really nice stuff, you know. Um, and so for me, it's worth it to have the bougie sheets and the bougie quilt and and that kind of thing because I mean, but that's just me. I, again, I don't think you necessarily need to go and spend a week's pay on sheets like I do, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's what brings me joy mm. you know I like to have nice things around I like I've got a lot of planets in Libra for people who are listening who are interested in astrology so <laughs> Libra is all about having the pretty things and I like having pretty things around mm. because then I'm I'm reminded that life is beautiful when I can see pretty things including pretty people I <laughs> I, I like to be able to see that that brings me pleasure you know and some people might say it's indulgent and it probably is and fuck it I don't yeah. care you know <laughs> life's too short <laughs> you know if I drop dead next week then someone's going to collect all my pretty things and that's great so that's fine <laughs> so, 
Oh, I'm totally with you on all of those things every night when I get into my bed with my lovely white cotton sheets and I'm just right. like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's those little joys throughout the day. Exactly, so. exactly. And that's the thing. I mean, I uh, one of my things is I like to sleep nude. And so I like to feel the skin, my skin on the sheet. And um, now my dog has recently decided that he wants to be part of that too. So he sleeps on the bed, not in the bed, but he sleeps on the bed, which sometimes is a bit annoying. But we've worked out where he can go and he doesn't annoy me too much and he also likes the texture and I notice he really like he's really picky about textures he won't sleep on the hard floor he wants the soft thing and he likes this fur blanket but not that one and I'm like wow you know he's mirroring me in so many ways so no it's just pleasure well dogs dogs and cats are great aren't they they just they're such pleasure creatures exactly. that's all they do is pleasure yeah, yeah. <laughs> masters of pleasure for sure yeah so thank you so much. And um, where can people find you online? So the best place to find me is my website, which is cindydarnell.com, C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. I am on uh, Instagram, cindy underscore darnell. And that also diverts to my uh, Facebook page, but I'm not really very active on Facebook anymore. I think a lot of people are not. And Twitter equally. I mean, it's there. It's again, Cindy underscore Darnell, but I don't really use it. Instagram is my main thing. Um, I also do have a mailing list, which I haven't sent out an email to my subscribers for a few months because I have been dealing with menopause myself. So I've been very uh, disoriented the last couple of months, but I think between various supplements and things I'm taking, I'm getting back on track. So I will be certainly being more active with my subscriber mailing list again in the coming new year. But certainly my website is the main place that you will access me. There's a lot of stuff there. My online courses are there. I am going to be adding more courses in the new year. My book's coming out uh, mid-22. So that's something to look out for. And um, on my website too is my podcast called The Erotic Philosopher, which will be, I will be starting that up again in the new year too. I took a break while I was finishing the book. Mm. So there's a lot of information on my website. I think it's one of the most densely packed sex websites <laughs> out of all the sex websites. It's, it's very, it really very dense, is. So yeah. <laughs> it really is. And I'll put all of your links in the notes. And, and it is such a great place to start because you've just got some really informative blogs some fantastic online courses so especially if you're just starting out in this world it really is and your instagram's brilliant as well so thank you thank you so so much it's been a real pleasure it's, oh you're very welcome i'm happy that we had the time to talk thank you for listening to the love sex and intimacy podcast with me sarah rose bright I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one -one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.